Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalms 28. Psalm 28. Listen now to the reading of God's word. Of David, to you, O Lord, I call, my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. I have a set of words for you to consider with me, which you can see in the title, if you're following the notes. When, then. I am aware that uh, the title doesn't give you much to hold on to. In that sense, it's like a little seed, which in and of itself doesn't mean much. But hopefully, as we water it, it'll sprout into something useful. So here's some water. The words when, then are meant to bring before you a paradox. A paradox that will set up Psalm 28 before our minds and hearts. In fact, you could use this paradox for almost every psalm. What is a paradox? A paradox is a statement that at first glance seems contradictory, contradictory. And if there ever was a paradox within the Christian life, it is precisely one that uses those two words in the title of this sermon. Paul said it like this, when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. When I am weak, then I am Strong. Talk about a paradox. Opposite terms to explain one coherent truth. But at the end of the day, that's what Christians must be. A people who are strong only when they are weak. But let's pour a bit more water over this two-word seed by considering the central truth for us this morning. Counterintuitive for sure. Or here it is. The Lord is creating weakness in you. 
so that you might understand what true strength is. I'm going to repeat that. The Lord is creating weakness in you so that you might understand what true strength is. And this single lesson is one of the most difficult for Christians to learn. It takes a lifetime. In fact, God has been teaching his people weakness for thousands of years. How? We'll get to that in just a moment. Now, the historical background to Psalm 28 is somewhat obscure. Like Psalm 27, there's not much information given. What we do know is that these words from David assume desperate times. David is captured not by enemies, but by a sense of urgency. He cries out to God out of deep sorrow, which goes hand in hand with God's purposes for us. The Lord doesn't create weakness in a vacuum. More often than not, weakness in us is revealed best when times are at their worst. And when times are at their worst, then God can be seen as the strongest. David will show us the times of sorrows and afflictions are God-given opportunities to acknowledge our weakness before the Lord, put our fleshly impulses to death, and learn to rely on Him for all things. In other words, afflictions are the battleground upon which the Lord teaches us the difference between leaning on the flesh and leaning on the Spirit. And here's where it all begins. Here's where it all begins. Here's our first point. So the flesh wants to be self-reliant. Can I get an amen? The flesh wants to be self-reliant, yet when I am Weak, and I'm going to have you write that word every single point. Yet when I am weak, then I can look for strength outside of myself. In the early 1930s, President Herbert Hoover coined the expression rugged individualism. To explain the experience of the Old West or the American frontier, in which society became more and more individualized, more and more reliant on the progress of individuals rather than the collective. Interestingly, the concept of rugged individualism became much deeper. It is now a philosophy of life. A survey taken in 2016 concluded that 57% of Americans do not believe that success was determined by forces outside of their control. And this makes sense. Since at the heart of rugged individualism is the idea of self-reliance. I can do all things on my own. Self-reliance is popular for the flesh is always seeking to establish itself as strong with a strength that is independent from God. But this is nothing new. After conquering many nations, the Assyrian king boasted saying, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. In stark contrast, the first thing we hear David say in Psalm 28 is, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. This is not self-reliant. 
This is not self-reliance. This is God-reliance. David begins his urgent cry by looking up, not down or in. Did you notice that? He looks up. He doesn't look down or in. And he calls God his rock because outside of God, David knew everything is nothing but sand. As a descendant of Abraham, David was trained to think in a certain way. From the beginning, God had taught his people, the Israelites, one crucial lesson. You know what that lesson was from the beginning? Do not trust in the flesh. Do not trust in the flesh. And the lesson began explicitly with the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is what? The sign of circumcision. The sign of circumcision. As one biblical scholar pointed out, quote, circumcision initiated a pedagogy in weakness, end quote. Through circumcision, God was essentially telling Abraham, don't miss this. You will have many descendants, Abraham, but the flesh is of no use. Cut it out. It will all be done by my power, not yours. God was teaching Abraham through circumcision along with all his descendants, David included, not to trust in the flesh, but to trust God and God alone. In this sense, think about it, Israel was to be a unique nation set apart Listen, this is important. Set apart exclusively to be weak in order to be strong. A nation that, unlike all the other nations in the world, was not to boast in its own abilities, its own strength, its own might, its own muscles. The cry of Israel was Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we, what? We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Israel was to be a culture separated unto weakness so that the only power that mattered was the power of the Lord operating in their midst. Therefore, we could say that way before Paul ever came into the scene, David already knew that when I am weak, then... I am strong. The Israelites were not rugged individualists who sought to live through self-reliance. Instead, they operated by another worldview, one that sought strength through faith, through faith. But now, here's the question worth pondering as we continue. How can we tell if we are being self-reliant or God-reliant? How can we tell is it possible to know whether we are walking by the strength of the flesh or the power of the Spirit? Can we tell the difference? If yes, how? Well, the short answer is yes, we can. But how? Well, David answers this question in the next statement in verse 1, which I will introduce like this in your notes. The flesh wants to be self-absorbed. The flesh wants to be self-absorbed. Yet, when I am what? Weak. Now you're getting it, huh? You're getting it. 
when I'm weak, I'm going to emphasize that word, then I can understand my desperate need of prayer. Verse 1 again, to you, O Lord, I call my rock, be not, what, deaf to me. Verse 2, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Let me ask you this. Let me personalize this. Let me make it very personal. What do you do when times are at their worst? Do you run inward to the flesh? In endless speculation, doubt, and fear? Or do you run outward to the Lord in ceaseless prayer? The answer to that one question reveals whether you are walking in the strength of the flesh or in the power of the Spirit. Prayer is born out of an awareness of fleshly weakness which can only be remedied with spiritual power. Prayer, prayer is the cry of weakness for the sake of strength. That's what weak people do. They pray. They pray. What David does here then is to reveal something that is true of every true believer. What is that? Well, for those who are weak, the thought of a deaf God is terrifying. It's terrifying. This is why Jesus took a little child and made him the example of true strength for children have one really important quality. Little children, they are not ashamed of their neediness. If they are hungry, guess what? They'll tell you. They'll let you know. If they are cold, they'll let you know. If they are too hot, they never seem to be comfortable. They'll tell you. If they are afraid, they will tell you. Here then, think about this, the great king, the mighty warrior, David, as if he could hear Jesus, speaks as a needy child. He needs God to listen the thought of God being deaf is devastating to him. Be not deaf to me. So I ask again, is the thought of a deaf God terrifying to you? If it is not, then you are in a dangerous place. For I can tell you this, lack of prayer is a sign of fleshly dependence. Lack of prayer is a sign of fleshly dependence. The question is obvious, is it not? If in moments of deep trial, we don't pray, then what are we resting upon? David had only one place to go, and he desperately says, God, I need you to listen to me. So here's the invitation. Come to God in your weakness and let your weakness drive you to your knees. If your weakness is not driving you to your knees, then that is a symptom of your flesh fighting against the Spirit. Remember, the flesh is always against the Spirit. The Spirit is always against the flesh. Put on the new self. You are a new creation in Christ. 
prayer is now your life, for you are in the spirit, not, no longer in the flesh. Now, prayer, though clearly essential, is not the end of the journey for those who are weak and are seeking to be strong. This is what we see next. The flesh wants to be wise. The flesh wants to be wise. Yet, when I am what? Weak. Then, and only then, I can listen submissively to God's voice. Then I can listen submissively to God's voice. Consider David's next statement in verse 1, in which he states the unthinkable. Lest, if you be what to me? Silent. If you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pits. For the believer, not only is the deafness of God a terrifying thought, equally as terrifying would be his silence. As you can see, God's project for humanity as reflected in Psalm 28 is to create a glorious reversal. A glorious reversal, what do I mean by that? I mean this. Pain and suffering, pain and suffering started when Adam and Eve sought to become wise in whose eyes? Their own eyes, and they sought to become wise in their own eyes, rejecting God's simple wisdom that said, you shall not eat of that tree. Instead, they thought to themselves, no, Lord, we know better. In Psalm 28, we begin to see what a reversal to this looks like. How? Well, the people of God ought to be characterized by a desire to return to the way things were in Eden, where the only voice that mattered was whose? God's. This is the great reversal that God is working through his people. I returned to Eden where the only voice that mattered was God's. And this should be especially true, brothers and sisters, in times of deep sorrow and anguish. For it is in those moments when we can be more prone to one to listen to the dictates and impulses of the flesh. And the flesh wants to be wise in its own eyes. But this is both deceitful and destructive. Now, let me ask you this. What are some of the cries of the flesh? What are some of the cries of the flesh? Well, Paul mentions several in Colossians chapter 3. I'll just give you a few. Here are some of the cries of the flesh. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. These things, Paul said, we must put to death. Why? Why do you think we must put them to death? Because they always want to come back to life, especially when we suffer. Listen to this. When the soul aches, the flesh longs to be heard. When the soul aches, the flesh longs to be heard. And anger is one of the many voices of the flesh. When we suffer, we tend to want to find objects upon which to place the blame. But you must silence that fleshly voice and listen instead 
to God and His Word. Don't allow your flesh ever to convince you that you don't need to hear God's voice. If there is one verse, one verse that I would suggest you and I plant deep within our hearts is Psalm 119, verse 92. Planted deep within. This is what the psalmist said. Psalm 119, verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. The psalmist says this. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. At times, afflictions seem to overpower us. And guess what? They would if we handle them by fleshly means. For the wisdom of the flesh is deadly. It's deadly. It only leads to death. But for the psalmist, there is something more powerful even than afflictions, namely that which remains forever, God's word. My brothers and sisters, God has spoken definitively, finally, sufficiently, inerrantly. God has spoken. Let us always listen to him and to him alone. In your many abundant tears, do not lose sight of this treasure. Do not listen to the voice of the flesh, for it will always deceive you. Time and time again, in faith, cling to the voice of God. Tell him, Lord, do not be silent to me. Guide me in the truth, lest I die. Next, we see this. The flesh wants to be self-seeking. The flesh wants to be self-seeking. Yet, when I am, what? Weak, then... I can acknowledge my fleshly propensities. I can acknowledge my fleshly propensities. Verse 3, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Let us be clear here, David is not saying, God, don't trick me. That's not what he's saying. That's not the point. The point is this, God, do not give me over to my flesh. In my afflictions, Lord, in my pain, in my sorrow, do not let me walk in hypocrisy like those who speak peace to their neighbor with their words but are plotting evil against them in their thoughts. Deliver me from a hypocritical life. Why is David asking this? Because he knows the propensities of his flesh. Thankfully, a Christian is a person who can come to God and wholeheartedly tell him, Lord, Keep me in your path that I might not go astray. Keep me in your path. Here's what we see next. The flesh wants to be tolerant. The flesh wants to be tolerant. Yet when I am weak, then I can think rightly about God. We're entering here into some, a little bit of difficulty here in verses 4 and 5. It says this, Give to them, the wicked, this says David, according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. This is, we could say, a mild form of imprecation imprecation 
An imprecation is a calling down of judgment upon sinners. And as Christians, we, we struggle with this language, don't we? Some people have even come to the conclusion that we should simply stay away from imprecatory psalms completely, 100%. We shouldn't even read those psalms. Interestingly enough, one of the most beloved psalms in all of the book of Psalms, Psalm 139, is one of the strongest imprecatory languages, language in all of the psalms. So should we stay away from imprecatory psalms? No. And this for two reasons. First, all scripture is breathed out by God. Amen? And therefore, profitable. That means that there is much profit in imprecatory psalms. Second, we should never reach the conclusion that our moral code is higher than God's. As the Corinthians did, when they allowed sexual immorality in their midst, what did Paul do? He chastised them for it. They were proud of their tolerance of sin, but Paul said, repent in 1 Corinthians 5. So without going into too much detail, what can we learn from the imprecatory language like this? Many things, but I will limit myself to just one. Imprecatory language in the Psalms gives us a truth that should resonate with the heart of every Christian everywhere and at all times, even in our deepest sorrows and sufferings. What is that truth? May God prevail. May God prevail. May God's justice prevail over injustice. May God's love prevail over hatred. Imprecatory language reminds us that we are free to long for God to prevail because he will never be unjust. He will never be unloving. He will always, always be perfect. God has never made a mistake in judgment, nor has he failed to love his people. He never has. He never will. He never will. I believe that at least to some extent, imprecatory language in the Psalms serves to remind the people of God Never to question, never to question the Lord's goodness, justice, and love, even as they themselves endure sorrows and trials of various kinds. The imprecatory Psalms remind us that God will always do, he will always do what is right. He will always do what is right. Therefore, says Peter, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 1 Peter 4, 19. In our sufferings, in your sufferings, ask God to prevail over the flesh so that you might not give in to the impulses of the flesh through despair, hopelessness, or a sense of utter abandonment. God has never failed you. His justice is impeccable. His love is incorruptible. So let us walk by the Spirit, and we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16. We see next, the flesh wants to be independent. The flesh wants to be independent. Yet, when I am weak, then I can experience God's power and protection. Verse 6, blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength 
and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. Did you notice a change in verse 6? There's a change in David's tone. He goes from desperate plea to grateful confidence. We don't know exactly if something happened in between verse 5 and 6. Or if David simply remembered God's goodness, whatever the case, David is now rejoicing. So here's something to remember. In your afflictions, in my afflictions, of whatever kind, be mindful of answered prayers. Be mindful of answered prayers. Don't lose sight of how the Lord is listening to your pleas for mercy. God is our strength and shield. What else could we need? How is he our strength and our shield? Once again, and as we did last month from Psalm 27, all you need to do is to consider the table that is set before you this morning. Jesus is our strength and our shield for all spiritual blessings are ours in him. Jesus has purified our conscience from our evil works. Jesus has taken all our guilt away. Jesus stands before the throne interceding for us. Jesus ensures that nothing in heaven and on earth or under the earth can separate us from God's love. In other words, the table of the Lord reminds us that His grace is sufficient for His power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Weakness. Are you weak? Are you needy this morning? Then the table is set before you for your joy, for your strength, for your peace. What do you have to do? Well, you come to the table in repentance and faith. The work has already been done. When your conscience accuses you, there he is standing to defend you. When your guilt is heavy on your shoulders, there he is standing to take the weight away. When you deal with a sense of divine abandonment, there he is standing to intercede for you and to remind you that you and God in him are fully, permanently reconciled. And when you fear your faith will fail, there he is standing. To guarantee that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He will hold you fast. And so we come to the last of our truths for this morning. The flesh wants to be self-sufficient. And notice the change in language here from the singular to the plural. The flesh wants to be self-sufficient, yet when we are weak, then... We can rest upon our good shepherd. Verse 8 and 9. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their what? 
their shepherd and carry them forever. I love how in verse 8, David speaks of the Lord's people and the Lord's anointed as one, almost interchangeably. Why is this the case? The anointed stands as a representative of his people. And the anointed, in terms of Jewish understanding, would have been the king, David himself. So David is here in verse 8, standing as a representative of the people of Israel. Whatever promises are made to God's anointed are also made to God's people. But with the further revelation of the New Testament, we know that the anointed per excellence, the true king, is not David, but the Lord Jesus. And the union between him and his people is even more perfect for now in the spirit. He is the head and we are the what? We are the body, the church. So here's the amazing truth. What God the Father is to the Lord Jesus, he is to us as well. For Jesus and we are one. So let me ask you this. Are you in God's hands? Are you in Christ through faith and by the Spirit? Are you believing in His Word and His promises? Then here's what God tells you this morning. I will shepherd you and I will carry you forever. Given some of your specific circumstances, you might be tempted to think the love of God has grown cold or is absent. But this will never be the case. This will never be the case. God loves you, believer, with infinite love. What is our confidence as Christians? Our confidence is that on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Christians are people who embrace their weakness, for as they let go of their fleshly strength, they are free to embrace the Lord, our true, unending, all-sufficient strength. Jesus is the Christ. The son of the living God. That truth is the rock upon which we are being built. So just think about it, my brother and sister. God is creating weakness in you so that you might rest your entire weight upon the rock who is Jesus Christ. God is showing you your weakness, the weakness of your flesh, so that you might fall fully upon the spirit who is never tired, who is never weary. So here's the conclusion. A repeat of the main point. The Spirit is teaching you weakness in order you to show you true strength. Therefore, don't run away from your weaknesses or from the painful circumstances that remind you of your weaknesses. For in them and through them, God is showing you true strength in Him. He may very well be leading you straight into the Red Sea to the point where you feel trapped between the raging waters and the fear, fierce Egyptian army coming to destroy you. And there you are trapped. But God is the one who parts the seas so that his bride might cross to safety upon dry land. The best way to trust God is by coming to those places where your strength is proven, your strength, your fleshly strength is proven to be weak and useless, insignificant and irrelevant. It is in those moments when you can see the power of Christ strengthening you. So, let us do what Paul did. Boast in your weakness. By running to God in constant prayer, 
not to your flesh in endless speculation and asking the what-ifs. Boast in your weakness by eagerly holding on to his word and not listening to yours, which is always deceitful. Is there any other way of teaching us true strength in God than by proving to us how utterly weak we are in ourselves? No, there is no other way. We need to know how weak we are before we will enjoy the true strength of God. As I said at the beginning, when this will, will close... As I said at the beginning, God told Abraham to circumcise his flesh and that of his descendants to teach them weakness so that they might learn to rest fully upon the power of God. Well, brothers and sisters, I have news for you. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 tells us that in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. God is teaching us weakness so that the power might be his. So Paul, knowing this, can say with full confidence, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Christ has been, Christ is, and Christ always will be strong for us. So let us rest in him alone. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for Psalm 28 and for the truth that David knew thousands of years ago. That it is only when we are weak that we can be strong. Help us never to rely on the power of the flesh, which is always weak and deceitful. But to always rely on the power of your spirit. Help us to learn full dependence on you. Help us to know that the work has been done in Christ through his cross, his death for our sins and his glorious resurrection, and that now he is building us up upon himself, the rock that never fails. So for those in our midst who are undergoing deep, deep afflictions and sufferings, may they learn to look to you and to you alone so that they may know and experience true strength from heaven. Thank you for loving us the way you do. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We respond this morning. Uh, we're going to sing actually this psalm, Psalm 28, and we'll use the melody of Christ the sure and steady anchor uh, to do that. So friends, let's Stand and sing as we respond and affirm our hope in our solid rock and our treasure.